Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. The British biographer, historian, novelist, journalist and essayist A.N. Wilson has an all-encompassing temporal and spiritual beat. From Jesus, Milton, Dante, Queen Victoria, Josiah Wedgwood, Hitler, Iris Murdoch and C.S. Lewis, to most recently the explorers aboard Captain Cook's Resolution. Wilson is an erudite discussion with Simon Wilson. We hope you enjoy this session. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she changes from day to day. I want to tell her that I love her a lot, but I gotta get a belly full of wine. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl. Someday I'm going to make her mine. Oh yeah, someday I'm going to make her mine. Paul McCartney is older than our guest today, A.N. Wilson, but there are some things they share. Englishmen interested in the Queen, just for starters. Over the last 40 years, A.N. Andrew Wilson has written books on Queen Elizabeth II and the I, and on Queen Victoria, and royals like Catherine the Great feature in his other books too. No surprise, perhaps. Over the last 40 years, Andrew has written at least 23 novels and 25 works of non-fiction. That's more than one a year. Some of the books are short, all of them are deeply researched, meticulously crafted, and several are proper doorstops. His subjects are among the grandest history has to offer. Tolstoy, Milton, Dante, James Cook, Goethe, Darwin, those royals, C.S. Lewis, Iris Murdoch, Walter Scott, Josiah Wedgwood, the Apostle Paul, Jesus, and Hitler. And tracking along with those people, the topics, the Bible, the Victorian age, the post-Victorian age, the Elizabethan age, the Enlightenment, the French and American revolutions, the church, faith and the lack of it, pedophilia, the profumo scandal, art, pottery, London. We'll have time for about one sentence on each. <laughs> and if there are any, is any time for questions at the end, I should warn you, I'll be cutting you off after five words. He's not always been popular. When you write with a fresh perspective and an unsentimental heart about the great and the good, as Andrew clearly loves to do, you will not always be thanked for it. One critic in the 90s said it is not hard to see what people dislike about Wilson. His basilisk eye on human weakness, his super efficient plotting, his grim affection for the melodramatic. None of those sound to me like they need be criticisms. And yet, continued the critic, he is surely the most talented novelist of his generation in this country, and his J.D. Edson scale of productivity confirms rather than negates his ability. And I should just tell you that John Thomas Edson wrote 137 westerns and other such books. You're not even halfway there. <laughs> Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. I quoted that because you wrote, once wrote much the same thing. After she had grown up, married, and become the queen, Lilibet, Elizabeth's personality faded from view. You would not envy any person who tries to write more than one side of A4 about her character. And yet you did. Why? Well, um, thank you very much for all those rather baffling words. Um, I can't really believe it's me you're describing, but there it is. Um, uh, the simple answer as to why I wrote a short book about the Queen uh, in the last 12 months is that somebody asked me to do it and um, <laughs> they offered me a sum of money. I mean, not a prodigious sum of money, but it was enough to, be, to make it worth doing. Um, and it interests me, obviously. I wouldn't have done it if it had been mm. a boring subject. And I think, I think it is a fascinating thing that you have a head of state who is a complete mystery to everybody, probably including to herself. But um, she doesn't seem like an introverted or introspective character. She just seems like a shy character, which is a rather different thing. Right. Um, if you'd written that little Beatles song, would you feel songs do it? What do books do that songs don't do? Well, I mean, songs are memorable, and many books are not memorable. <laughs> okay. Would you like to have been Paul McCartney, or is that not idea horrifying? Not in the very least. Not in the very much. least. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> Quite apart from his marital history, there are many other reasons why I wouldn't <laughs> wish to be in Sir Paul's shoes. You're not naturally interested in popular history, would that be fair to say? I've read a piece by you on the 70s, you appear to despise the 70s. <laughs> well, I mean, it was a disaster era, but um, 
we needn't go into all that. Okay, all right. Let's talk about Queen Victoria. Much happier to do that, yes. Okay, one of the other queens you've written about. One of much your insights. More at home, much more at home in the 19th century than the 20th. Okay. One of your insights to Queen Victoria is that she was an artist living an entirely inward life given to us through what you call the rich comedy of her consciousness. And she was the granddaughter of George III, of course. Was she afraid of going mad? She was extremely afraid of going mad. Mm. And unlike the present queen, uh, whom I've said I don't believe is a great uh, examiner of herself, Queen Victoria was a kind of um, Proust. She, she just wrote and wrote and wrote about her inner life all the time. It's been estimated, hasn't it, that if you, if you put into volume form all her letters and diaries, it would fill a library of 700 volumes. And um, she was a sort of novelist, Monkey, really. And I think she was, uh, I don't know whether she was afraid of going mad, I think she was on the verge of actually being mad. Um, and everybody was afraid of this uh, in her entourage. It's one of the, again, another very fascinating fact about her, which was, what do you mean by mad? And if you take the Michel Foucault view of madness, it's just a way of wishing to people to conform. Right. The, she, she was a woman, fairly obviously, in an entirely male world. She was the only woman head of state. Uh, she, the world had left behind. The, the funny thing about revolutions is that they're nearly always led by men. I know there was Rosa Luxemburg in Germany, but uh, the French Revolution had, had hardly any women of significance uh, in its ranks. And certainly, people like Robespierre never promoted women. Uh, and by the time of Queen Victoria coming along, the women of the Ancien Regime, like Catherine the Great, had faded into the past. There were no female heads of state. She was the only one. And of course, therefore, when she reacted to things in a way that the men could describe as hysterical or emotional, uh, they could then sort of start saying, yeah. have you seen her bulging eyes? They're just like those of the late King George III, which they jolly well are. <laughs> So what, what was her greatest achievement, would you say? Oh, lasting so long. Lasting. And, and, that's, and that's, the, that's the greatest achievement of the present week. No, I was too. going to ask you for a comparison, but <laughs> do you want to go a little deeper? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, this is very indiscreet, so don't tell anybody, but a friend of mine, a friend of mine was having a meal uh, the other day. Um, the Duke of Edinburgh was at the other side of the table, and the, the friend and his neighbour were talking about how unguarded and difficult Prince Charles was in lots and lots of respects. And they were talking about, in particular, in relation to the um, department, the government department that, that my friend worked for. And rather to his embarrassment, the whole table went quiet, and the Duke of Edinburgh was sitting uh, on the other side of the table, and he said, what are you talking about? And they went a little bit pink, and then they admitted what they were talking about, and the Duke is alleged to have replied, oh, that. Why do you think we both live so bloody long? <laughs> and, and living long is actually quite a positive thing to do if, there's, a, if there's the danger of something worse coming along. You became a writer because of your experience reading about Queen Victoria. You, you were reading Lytton Strachey. I was sitting in the temple reading room at Rugby the final paragraph in which Strachey imagined the dying Victoria at Osborne House sinking out of consciousness as the scenes of her past life flitted through her brain struck me as one of the best pieces of writing I have ever encountered. Well, I mean, that is, I did write that, so whether it's true or not, I certainly wrote it. Um, I can remember that moment very, very clearly. I can, up to that point, like most young people, I'd written stuff. Yeah. But... I can remember when I was coming to the end of Lytton Strachey's book, um, I thought, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be able to write prose, basically. Right. And yet, you've also, it's also been said of you, when you came to write about the Victorians, that very famous book of yours, that despite the inspiration, you've uh, written about the 19th century, and the critic, one critic said, best of all is the way he liberates the Victorians from the long, clammy shadow of Lytton Strachey. Yes, well, I don't. Yes. I mean, I wrote a whole series of novels about my obsession with Lytton Strachey called The Lampet Chronicles, mm, mm. but um, I hope I've uh, escaped 
my obsession with Lytton Strachey by now. But um, I don't think it's very fair to describe his grasp as clammy. I think he was rather dry, actually. Okay. He was no. high camp, but dry. I but you say. did rescue our understanding of the Victorians. That this is what he was really saying, from the view that they were narrow-minded hypocrites. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think they were, like all uh, peoples, in a very vibrant and changeable society, they did some absolutely appalling things, and even more, the things they didn't do were appalling. I mean, they didn't seem to notice the poverty in their midst. Mm. But um, what I like about the Victorians, and I like more the, uh, about the Victorians than I do about my contemporaries, I think, they were very self-critical. And when an abuse was pointed out, uh, the other day I went to Lucinda Hawksley's wonderful presentation about Charles Dickens. And when Dickens exposed some awful wrong, such as the Yorkshire schools we were being told about in Nicholas Nittleby, um, that, was, uh, that was addressed almost immediately. A few years after Nicholas Nittleby was published, uh, those terrible schools were all cleared up and closed down. Now, I know that we try to do that, but if you think of uh, in Britain at the moment, there's a so-called child abuse inquiry going on. Well, it's been going on for years and years and years, and various people whom Dickens would certainly have satirized and thought came out of the circumlocution office right. have been put in charge of it and then had mm. to withdraw because they were unsuitable. And the paperwork and the money for the lawyers mounting up, it is a Dickensian situation or a Godel-esque situation. They've done absolutely nothing, niente, nicks and you know, for of course, children who yeah, are suffering yeah, yeah, at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So a bit of reforming zeal, would, uh, Victorian reforming zeal, would um, exactly. go a long way. But not, uh, but, and by, I mean real reforming, not just striking attitudes, but actually changing things overnight. Or think of Bazalgette digging the, uh, the sewers in London. Um, or think of Prince Albert doing the, the Great Exhibition and making so much money out of that that um, the royal family still goes down to Kensington every year and doles out money to the Royal Albert Hall right. and to the museums yeah. uh, from, the, from the profits made in 1851. I mean, they, they, they were achievers in a way that we simply aren't. <laughs> I wonder if we can go back a century to the Enlightenment now, to the potter's hand. Your father was managing director of Wedgwood and Sons. You're the first generation of Wilsons not to have been potters, although I've seen you wearing a potter's apron uh, since the time of George III. That's uh, true. Mm. The Potter's Hand is a biographical novel of Josiah Wedgwood and of his daughter Suki, who became the mother of Charles Darwin, and it has a cast of hundreds. It's teeming with life and ideas and events, and one of the people is John Wesley. Um, and I wonder if I could just ask you now to read this short piece. Oh, golly. Yeah. So, two Andrew's going to read two pieces this. for us today, and, and, and I should stress that I chose them. So, if they're, um, you think I've chosen the wrong pieces, blame me and not him. Yeah. It's not a dirty bit, is it? It's not a bit, no. No, we're going to come to that later. I really, <laughs> I really would find that embarrassing. Because, you know, just make, there are I'm just going to make sure. <laughs> I, think, I think it's all right. <laughs> Dropped John Wesley, so it should be all right. He kept it should be. <laughs> he usually kept his britches on, I think. Though actually, didn't he, he have about 25 on. children? Anyway. <laughs> so here we are. This is John Wesley coming to the Potteries, which is the part of England I come from, uh, otherwise known as Staffordshire. When John Wesley came to the Potteries, Josiah had been to see the famous orator. It was like something in the Bible, as when the prophet Elijah gathered together Israel to witness his contests with the prophets of Baal, or when Moses drew the Israelites to the foot of the mount. The prophet Wesley had drawn a crowd of nearly a thousand men and women, and as he spoke of their sinfulness and their neediness and their redemption through the Savior's blood, extraordinary waves of enthusiasm had passed through the crowd. Josiah had been repelled some of the men were weeping, groaning, even shrieking for forgiveness. Their menad wives were shouting, Alleluia. And when the hymns began, it had been time for Old Woodenleg, which was his nickname, to take his leave. But as he'd done so and hobbled back to the coach, the whole hillside had reverberated to the words and music. Poetry of a kind, but poetry of a kind which seemed uncivilized. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. 
the collective hysteria had been nothing to do with reason. It had nothing civic about it. It was all concerned with the mishmash of emotion inside these confused individuals. It was the same phenomenon which made them lurch in and out of taverns and fuddle their wits with gin. No wonder Wesley made his disciples forswear gin. He was peddling a rival mind rot. <laughs> now some of the hands at the works were asking if they could build a Wesleyan chapel at Etruria. It seemed like a contradiction of everything Josiah stood for. He had lived to see the world turning away from superstitious hierarchies towards a juster, more rational basis for society. He had lived to see and rejoiced to see the American Revolution. He'd seen the ingenuity of his friends, Bolton and Watt, transform the manufacturing industry of the country. With friends Brindley and Bridgewater, he'd helped construct a canal system which made it possible to transport manufactured goods from one end of the kingdom to the other, smoothly, efficiently. Above all, in his own sphere, he'd not only outstripped all rivals, he had become better and better at his craft. Thank you. So the, the, the novel is the great historical document. It's quite marvelous. Yep. What you've you. got there is, is Wedgwood in the middle of this extraordinary age, but it's an age that we tend to think of in as the age of Voltaire, isn't it? The, the age of the intellectual. But Wedgwood is an outsider on, on that. He, he knows intellectuals, he's part of their circle, but he's not one. Um, you've got him as socially awkward, uh, he's a Staffordshire local with an accent to prove it, you've got him speaking in that way. Um, so you set up these two pillars of the Enlightenment, manufacturing, the, the birth, the dawn of the industrial age, uh, and intellectual life, the ferment of ideas. And, and that's obviously deeply interesting to you. That it, that it, well, it's what I grew up with, really, in mm. Staffordshire, because it's all around you. It was, in my youth, all around you, um, absolutely visible and palpable. The achievement of these men, such as uh, Charles Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus, uh, who was a, a scientist and a philosopher, and a poet. And a fiddler um, under the Matthew petticoats. Bolton, <laughs> Matthew Bolton, Josiah Wedgwood, all these people. Um, they were rationalists. Uh, they believed that it was possible to think out ways of making the world a better place. And they believed in trade, and they made money by selling things which other people wanted to have. And um, it was a completely different world from the world of their hero, Voltaire, uh, of whom Wedgwood kept making busts and sending mm -hmm. uh, medallions of Voltaire to people because um, the French intellectuals started with the idea and then wanted to change the world. Uh, the British intellectuals, and I think in a way it's fair to call, Wes, uh, to call Wedgwood a sort of intellectual, um, because he was such a clever scientist. Uh, they, thought of, they, they invented things which changed the world, and then, it, uh, then they decided what to do about it. Uh, hence you get Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations, which. Uh, the consequences of which, as I've already boringly said <laughs> once before at this, um, this lovely festival, we're still living with, of course, global capitalism and all the rest. Mm. You've, uh, Josiah Wedgwood is a talented outsider in, in those sorts of ways, and, and that strikes me as, as, a, as a character as, uh, of interest to you and is, is there again in resolution in, in your fiction, certainly, uh, the recurring theme of awkward men who rise to the occasion. Uh, they don't all rise, of course, do they? Reinhold Forster and Resolution yeah. well, got lucky, but didn't rise as a The Forsters didn't. Uh, they, they sort of rose and then sank again. Mm. But Captain Cook rose, mm. and the world rose with him. Uh, and so did... Uh, and the world rose with Wedgwood and the many other manufacturers your, who your, created trade. Your portrait of, of Reinhold Forster strikes me as a, a, a remarkable portrait of a man with Asperger's syndrome. Um, you haven't said that, though. I haven't heard you say that, and it's certainly not what you said in the book. Um, well, I don't think they knew what Asperger's syndrome was in the 18th century. But we do. Yeah. We do. I mean, to tell you the truth, um, and this isn't... I'm not meaning to criticise your reading of his character. I think we use that um, so-called scale a little bit too freely to, just to explain one another. I mean, most men are glumphing and awkward in the emotional mm. sphere. And, um, it's true. And it's, it's true. very easy to say that they're on the Asperger's. 
Um, Maybe we'll just all wear it. Okay. I mean, of course, they probably are, but I just feel that if you're a novelist, as opposed to being um, a psychotherapist or a doctor, you, it's your job to think of slightly more complicated ways of explaining why men are so awful. Right. <laughs> your, his son, George, uh, begins the voyage as a 17-year-old. He's brilliant and talented, and through his life forlorn. Um, do you, do you identify with him? Do you, do you feel, was he personally of interest to you? George, you in, yes. the, the boy. Well, I mean, I, he must have been, otherwise I wouldn't have written a book mm. about him, I suppose. Um, and I, th I think, I didn't um, identify with him in the sense of thinking this is a, a way of writing the story of my own life. But when I'd finished it, I did see there were points of comparison, that, that his closest companion was his father, and my closest companion was my father when I was growing up. But I wasn't, I'm glad to say, much as I love my father to this hour, uh, I wasn't um, locked up with him on a sea-going vessel for three and a half years. <laughs> yes, that would be trying for most <laughs> of us, I'm making, sure. And making my way to Antarctica, because I think that would have put a strain on our relationship. <laughs> it is a, one of the lovely things about resolution, is, is, the, is the dawning awareness in George of his far more complicated relationship, his growing up, his relationship with his father, that his father was brilliant, of course, but also um, the butt of the sailor's jokes from the start. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, George is aware of what other people think about them both in a way that yeah. perhaps, if we're pursuing your Aspergery analogy or diagnosis, perhaps the father isn't aware. I mean, it certainly makes a better joke if the father behaves as if he isn't aware. Yes, right. I wonder if we could talk about sex for a moment. In, in Resolution, there's a passage where George's wife, Therese, has left him for another man, and he thinks he's in the house alone, but for the servants, and yet their friend Catherine is there. And you write, he rang the bell again. Moments later, the door opened. It was Carolyn. I'm sorry, his friend Carolyn. Carolyn, carrying a papier-mâché florally decorated tray on which tinkled two glasses and a decanter of Riesling. Her thick chestnut curls fell onto her creamy shoulders. She was completely naked. I thought we so weren't having the dirty bits. Now we're going to. <laughs> so we're in a very racy episode of The Bachelor all of a sudden. And there is a lot of sex in your novels. Yes, there yeah. is. Yeah. That's why I was frightened when you dropped them out. <laughs> I, I want to say there's a lot of sex in your novels for all the right reasons. It, it, you use it to deepen character, define relationships, and move the plot along. Um, and you're clearly aware that that's what you're doing. Well, there's a lot of sex in life. Yes. And that's why it's happening. Yeah. Um, and yet there are also, I talked about your meticulous research at the, at the start, the, the meticulously researched details, the papier-mâché tray, the, uh, you know, that it's not just wine that's decanted wine, it's Riesling. You, you know very precisely, and you tell us very precisely what's happening at every stage, don't you? It's a well, in the case of this particular marriage, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book uh, is that it's, it's horrifically well described by both parties in the marriage, uh, what's gone wrong with it, and basically that they were sexually incompatible from the word go. Um, and um, so the one does know, I, I haven't made a lot up actually, funnily enough. Right. You, uh, could I say also, Andrew, the wonderful comedy, Carolyn, her dark curls on her shoulders, her eyes glossy, her breath carrying on it a mixture of the gravy and dumplings they'd eaten for dinner. <laughs> Well, they are, they are Germans, these people. <laughs> and this... You probably don't have dumplings, but... Um, we know. <laughs> it's a very beautiful passage here, this, anyway. this paragraph. Oh, this, yeah. what's it? You promised me this isn't filth. It isn't filth? Yeah. I think it's lovely. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, no, this is very sad. Um, this is when they're in bed together. The, not George and his wife's best friend, but George and his wife. It's just after they've been married, too, isn't it? There, so yes, yeah. I mean, it's practically not quite their wedding night, but they've only been married a few weeks. That evening, left alone together... Why did you choose this bit? Anyway, here it is. Um, <laughs> that evening, left alone together in a bed whose sunken straw mattress made their two bodies slither together in its declivity. Neither Therese nor George had ever felt so alone in their lives. Neither of their mouths dared say it or ask it, but their bodies asked it. Whether this was the most fundamental mistake of which two human beings are capable, marrying 
the wrong person. Both were so miserable and suddenly, under inadequate blankets, so cold that when they both wept, they held one another out of pity. I want to say I chose that because I think it is an extraordinarily beautiful passage and in a novel teeming with ideas like all the novels, um, your ability to cut through to the core of a human experience uh, is, is remarkable and lovely. And oh, thank I just you. Just wanted to put that there. Let's talk about Darwin. You're writing about, you've written about Darwin. Your next book is, is Darwin. Charles is Darwin. Yes, now. that's right. Yes, Charles Darwin. Yes. Um, one critic said of you, he does not pretend that he's counted heads in 1830s Lancashire or read all of Palmerston's blustery correspondence, but he knows how to use the work of those who have without violating either his integrity or theirs. It follows that Wilson does not indeed cannot break new ground or spectacularly overturn what has gone before. But is that true? You, you are breaking new ground with, with, you've broken new ground with Dante, you've broken new ground with St. Paul. Well, thank and, you. And I think you will be with Darwin, won't you? Well, I mean, the thing about Darwin, from a biographical point of view, is that there hasn't been a, a big overall survey of the, the point of Darwin and, uh, and the point of him in the history of science uh, for, what, 30, 40 years, really. Um, in the last 25 years, genetics has made such an advance that we can now see that the critics, the scientific critics of Darwin in his own lifetime, the ones he found so utterly devastating, uh, were right, basically, and that Darwin's theory of how we evolve is basically wrong. So um, I, I think that that's, whether that's a surprise to anybody to hear, I don't know, but um, that's certainly what I've come to believe. And I also have come to believe that, quite apart from whether or not you could accept uh, the exact process of natural selection which he posits, which is completely unnecessary once you've understood um, the structure of the double helix. Um, you remember, I mean, let's think of a very obvious example. Um, one of the things which he says in The Origin of Species would uh, cause his theory to collapse is if it could be shown that the eye, or a really complicated mechanism, uh, he chooses the eye, uh, had simply arrived, as it were, like that. Mm. What he was getting tied up, up uh, about in, in his own mind, as people continue to do to this day for some strange reason, is he thought that there was only um, one alternative. Either it had evolved little by little by little by little by little by little, or it had been plonked there by Almighty God and you couldn't really choose between the two. Well, what genetics shows is that, I mean, there's a, there's a particular gene, which I think they call P6. Um, if this gene is put into a fruit bat, it creates, as it were, creates, in inverted commas, um, a fruit bat eye with its many lenses. If it's put into you, it's what explains the, the ability to use the eye. How the eye came to be there, um, neither Darwin's explanation nor the genetic yeah. explanation will explain it. It's not really science's job to explain it. But, I mean, his little by little by little theory um, just isn't necessary anymore. So, do you expect your book will be acclaimed? Will you be picking a fight? There's some evidence in your career you I do pick fights. I don't wish to pick a fight with anybody, you but don't? I can no. imagine that there are scientists who will say that it's a load of old baloney. And there will be scientists who spring to your defense, you expect? Well, certainly, because I've, I haven't made these theories up myself. I've been, I've been following scientific observations over the last 25 years. I mean, one of the things which, again, Darwin says, we mustn't be talking about Darwin all the time. Um, Darwin says that there is no particular evidence in the fossils as yet for his theory being true, but one day there'll be enough uh, paleontological evidence to prove it. Well, there were these two very famous paleontologists in New York, one called Stephen J. Gould and the other called Eldridge, who's still with us. Mm. Um, they've shown really beyond any questions at all, and they're not, they're not um, Bible-bashing creationist characters, I think they're both religious unbelievers probably, uh, that evolution proceeds by leaps, what they've called punctuated equilibrium. Um, 
it doesn't do little by little by little. Uh, you get these new forms emerging in, in the fossils. It, of course, within the species, um, a horse or a human being or whatever, uh, you see the gradual improvement uh, of the species uh, uh, and adapting itself to the environment. But you don't see uh, the whole form, let's say the form of a hand or, or, or the form of an eye, gradually evolving. It was Gould, I think, who said that there, is a, there are the two spheres, sphere for science, sphere for religion. And you mentioned before you thought there, was, there were elements of, of this field which it wasn't science's job to answer. So I'm assuming you are a Gouldian in that sense, that it isn't, it's not just that science can't explain why and I, but that you don't think that will ever be science's I don't role. think anybody will ever explain that sort of question, whether they're religious or not religious, no. scientific or not scientific. But the other thing, and I would just like to go back to it because you mentioned the Victorians. Um, I think it's very much open to question how evolution works. And as I say, I'm sure there'll be lots of scientists who say I've made lots of howlers and mistakes about that particular question. But the, the second famous book he wrote, apart from The Origin of Species, which relate to these questions, uh, is called The Descent of Man. And many people praise that book and I can only conclude the reason they praise it is that they haven't read it. <laughs> because if you do read it, it does read like what unfortunately it is, uh, historically speaking. It's a kind of uh, Nazi text. Um, it, it's trying to explain, because he believes that uh, in this theory of survival of the fittest, that the strong always uh, ousts the weak, that cooperation is non-existent uh, in, in the development of species. Um, there's a fellow called E.O. Wilson. He might be your great uncle, but he's not mine. He's the most distinguished insect man in the United States of America. And he used to be a very convinced um, Darwinian in any old-fashioned sense of the word. He still believes in Darwin. But he's pointed out that this uh, theory, particularly when developed as the selfish gene and that sort of thing, is absolute rubbish if you come to think about an ant hill or a beehive. If they were if they were all at one another's throats, um, how would they have got round to building a beehive or an anthill? And likewise, if our ancestors, um, hominid sort of creatures wandering about the world, simply wanting to biff one another, um, how would they ever have been unselfish enough to look after a family and make sure the babies didn't die and, and so on? It, it, I'm sure Dawkins would say you're simplifying his argument, but perhaps we'll move on. Uh, be better because, to move on because he's not here to defend himself. Yeah. You said just now that you don't want to pick fights with anyone, but actually people pick fights with you, don't they? Your well, all people pick fights all the time. Okay, your Hitler biography was uh, attacked. You, you were. Oh, well, that was that was attacked by a loony. I mean, yeah, that was okay. Different. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But I was just going to give you a little list. You were pranked for your John Betjeman, attacked for the Iris Murdoch, attacked for the Dante. It's these loonies are scholars, aren't they? Is well, there no, something I about I, I, academics I that... I didn't know those other books had been attacked particularly. <laughs> I don't call getting a bad review being attacked. Uh -huh. But, I mean, that man went on for week after week after week. He's a professor at Cambridge. Yes, that's right. Um, um, <laughs> he, called, he said the repellent arrogance of a man who thinks that because he's a celebrated novelist, he can write a book about Hitler. I know, but uh, he does... Uh, I wasn't terribly upset by that because, A, he is obviously deranged, but also, <laughs> um, don't tell him I said so. No, but, okay, um, we, we, we will only but, broadcast this locally. But yeah. the other thing is that he writes that review every time anybody writes a, a book about a German subject. Right, and actually... He writes versions of that review. And actually, this is, is this a pattern here that there are academics who feel you tread on their patch well, because I think you're he not thought, I think he thought that, um, well, a friend of mine, when the review, the first of his reviews appeared, because he kept writing it. <laughs> he kept writing it over and over again in the pages of the New Statesman magazine. Um, the first day, somebody said, it's as if you've been to bed with his wife. And, um, <laughs> and I read his review again. I didn't quite see the analogy, and then I did see what he meant. Uh, what he meant was, uh, you've trespassed on his most beloved territory, yes. which he regards as his and his alone, yeah. the history of the Third Reich. And, I mean, he put absurd things in it, saying there was no... Uh, I, I hadn't quoted any German books in the bibliography. Well, I had, you know, that sort of thing. Right. But, I mean, dons will be dons. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, when I was a sort of would-be don, one of them said, the reason we all hate one another so much 
is that we don't really have proper colleagues in Oxford and Cambridge. It's different in campus universities where you do meet mm. together. Well, you tend to sit in their rooms rather like moles underground. Right. Well, you, um, you must the, have been... The, mo the moles all hate one another. You really. must have been tempted to join them at some stage in your career. I was so relieved when I left. Right. Oh, it was a terrific... Never I wasn't very good at it, for one thing. Really? Um, and um, when I was offered a job in journalism, I just took it like a shot uh, and left Oxford. Right. When you um, wrote your biography of John Betjeman, you, there was a... You were oh, I suddenly your, remember what you're yeah. talking about. Yes. But that was a different thing altogether. Okay. And also, we're perfectly good friends now, the man who wrote that. Right. You, somebody wrote a hoax letter and... and, and He'd <laughs> written a book about Betjeman, and he thought yes. that I shouldn't have been so cheaty as to do the same. Do the, yeah, and it's the same thing, isn't it? Libby Purvis wrote, the responsible right-thinking people will be to roll around on the carpet shrieking with laughter. The bamboozling of a modish author, blah, blah. Um, salutary reminder that lives, however picaresque, matter less to posterity than works. And I imagine you would agree with that. Um, the lives matter less than the works. Of these poets? Yes, or of, of your subject, of, of writers. Well, of, listen, of course. Yes. Of course, I agree with that. Okay. Iris Murdoch, you wrote in your book on Iris Murdoch, the really interesting fact about Iris Murdoch was that she wrote some pretty good novels. Yes, well, I would think that. Pretty good novels. I certainly agree with that. Mm, pretty good. Mm. So you, you don't really rate her? No, no, I mean, there's such a thing as understatement, Simon. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, th I, I, meant, I meant by that, I meant bloody good novels, okay. but I put pretty good novels. Um, no, I, I really admire her. And she was a kind, I was very lucky, I knew her. And um, uh, she was a kind of guide to me. And uh, I, I tremendously admire her to this day, as a person too. But. Um, the thing that will survive of her is her novels. And I did, one of the reasons I wrote that book, uh, there was a, a film made about her. Mm. And it was a very, very moving film. Um, it'd be very hard, I cry extremely easily, unfortunately, but it'd be very hard to see that film without weeping like a baby. But um, it was a ridiculous uh, travesty of the truth. And, um, it sort of made me think, somebody's got to write about the, the real Iris. And then the other thing I thought which was so sad was that for, well, for months after that film came out, because it was such a good film, and Richard Eyre had nursed his own mother with Alzheimer's, and it, he'd put so much of that into it, and uh, Judy Dench's acting was, was utterly brilliant, I thought. Um, for that reason, uh, I felt somebody should address the question of not Iris Murdoch, the, as, the Alzheimer's patient, but Iris Murdoch, the novelist, and, uh, and try to recreate what she was like before this terrible illness fell, befell her. Right. At the risk of becoming the butt of your next joke, I want to quote you from the uh, So sorry, I didn't mean to be uncomfortable. No, no, you, <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> You wrote recently in The Spectator, yet of course the whole of the small saloon was blocked by one of those enormous chariots in which toddlers are nowadays pushed around. <laughs> Only a cantankerous old git would not pretend to coo at the sweet little things as it, as it yelled and spewed, but I'm sorry, toddlers have turned me into a cantankerous old git. They are bloody everywhere, skating around the parquet floor of all the great galleries, shouting their heads off in restaurants. Why would you want to be a cantankerous old kid? <laughs> I, I don't want to be, but I, I do find children in places where they've really got nothing to do except sh scream and shout and move about the floor, um, a bloody nuisance, basically. Right. <laughs> Just as simple as that. Yes, I mean, I've, I'm a grandfather of six children. Um, do you take them to galleries? No, I do not. Ah, I see. Right. Do their parents but take their them parents to galleries? Do, they do. Very, mm. And they're pushed around in these... We were, when we were little, we were carried about or we were put in lovely prams so you could see mm -hmm. your mother's face. Um, they now have these buggies or strollers, as my American grandchildren would call it. Um, they never see anybody, of course, because they're, just, they're, just, they're strapped in and then they're moved around. We and of course, by the time they get to the art gallery or the theatre or the nice quiet room in a library, they want to yell their heads off. We could probably unpack this for a good half hour, yes, but, but let's move on. Now, 
One of my favorite quotes of yours actually is, again in The Spectator, the point of gin drinking is to get drunk. <laughs> the toothless hags of Hogarth's Gin Alley and the leathery old expats of Noel Coward had the same sensible idea. There are, in my experience, almost no writers about wine, alcohol of any kind, who will acknowledge that the point of drinking is to get drunk. I know, it's, very, it's, it's absolutely baffling when you read all of the wine <laughs> columns and so on, because the whole... I, I don't understand alcohol-free beer myself. <laughs> I mean, you either, have a glass, you either have a glass of water, which we're having, or you want... I mean, I don't mean you want to get plastered immediately, mm. but of course you want a, that rather nice sensation. The, the psalmist mm. says, wine that maketh glad the heart of mm. man. Uh, making one think he'd probably been to New Zealand. But um, of course you want that nice feeling. Yes. You also wrote in the same piece, labels are suggestive to the taste buds, but after the second glass, it doesn't matter what brand you're drinking. <laughs> I think you, that's true too. You, you, like, you actually like sharpening a stick and poking people with it, don't you? <laughs> well, I, didn't, I don't think that's particularly sharp. Oh, okay. I just think it's, just think it's true. <laughs> I wonder whether you, you feel that there's a, a, there's a great English tradition and you're declaring it, that leave us to our eccentricity for it is the most glorious part of us. You well, I, I, I don't think of myself as eccentric, you, but no. obviously no, nobody... But you're standing up for it nevertheless. Yes? No? Well, all right, yes, I, I stand up for it. <laughs> I stand up for people being allowed to be themselves. Being themselves of a different kind, I wonder if we could just go to your boarding school for a moment. The headmaster at your boarding school when you were a child was a pedophile, his wife was a jealous sadist who picked on all the boys that yes. the headmaster had already picked on. And you wrote about this in the novel, My Name is Legion. You wrote about it again in The Guardian to publicize the, the book, Dante and Love. Will you write about it some I more? I didn't know I'd written about it in, the, in, the, in Dante, I wrote about it. Anyway, perhaps the, Dante has an There's a piece in The Guardian that's time oh, I see, to coincide I just, I, with the, when the, I was, yes. yeah. mm. Well, I mean, I don't know to tell you the truth. It, all writers draw on their experiences mm. and um, I suppose the, if you've had an experience which isn't particularly pleasant, um, it's natural that you will revert to it or use it in some way or another. Do you feel angry now? Are you over it? You, uh, can you talk um, about it? I feel extremely angry about it, mm. yes. Mm. I mean, it was an institution which should have been closed down by the police, and had Charles Dickens known about it, it would have been closed down. Right, right. Um, as we've already established. But I mean, it was the most appalling regime based on sexual sadism, which these two people were practicing on dozens and dozens of children in many different ways, because they were, they were good at it. They thought of lots of different ways to do it. And it was the teachers in the end, wasn't it, finally, who... It was two teachers. Um, my mother was a, a strange woman, but a very sensible one, fundamentally. And um, she found out from another friend of hers that her boy had run away. Um, and the reason he'd run away is that yet another advance had been made on him by the headmaster. And he told his mother, and he was the first person... I mean, one of the things, we all know now this about child abuse, um, when it happens to you, you clam up. You don't want to talk about it. And you're certainly frightened of talking about it to grown-ups. I mean, I can remember when I first went back home, I, went, I was sent uh, away to this school age seven. And I can remember... Um, wanting to turn my back to my mother when I was having a bath, because at seven she would still come in and talk to me while I was having a bath, so that she couldn't see um, yeah. the blood all over one's back and bottom and legs and so forth. Was, I mean, we were just thrashed and beaten so often that we, we were covered with bruises and cuts and uh, welts and so forth. It was like being in Lord Nelson's Navy, only without any of the amusing sides to them. Um, and that's, uh, I mean, I'm afraid to say that's, all too common, yeah. and uh, it's very, very sad to think of these basically innocent people, our parents' generation, um, sending their children to these often quite expensive establishments, and um, that was what was going on. Indeed. You're the famous people in your books, not always chosen because you admire them, Hitler obviously, also C.S. Lewis. Um, when you were still a Christian the first time round, you found his defense of faith so poorly argued that you, you wrote, it almost on its own made you an atheist. I know, well, I mean, it's the closest I've ever, I am a wishy-washy, as I said on an earlier occasion on this, at this um, festival, and 
so I don't normally think of defining myself in very exact ways, but I can remember um, when I wrote the C.S. Lewis book, actually thinking I've become a kind of Richard Dawkins atheist, practically. Right, right. I did, that, that feeling didn't last very long, it must be said, but um, it, it happened in church. I was having a, a public debate with the vicar of the church. There's a church in London which has two pulpits, and the C.S. Lewis book came out, and the publicist at Collins, as it was in those days, before it was Harper Collins, thought it would be rather good if I stood in one pulpit and he stood in the other, and we talked about C.S. Lewis, and I suddenly, it became like somebody in a Billy Graham rally. I was testifying that the whole thing is a load right. of absolute drivel, <laughs> none of it is true. C.S. <laughs> Lewis's arguments are so appalling and so forth. I, I want to come back to that question of faith, but just on, on Lewis, you've recorded that Lewis was defeated in a debate himself in Oxford in 1948 by Elizabeth Anscombe, Indeed, a woman. Yes. Uh, and you, you wrote that the episode stung him back into childhood, and that's where the witch came from, the lion, the witch. And well, some experts on C.S. Lewis, and I'm not one, but I, I do deeply admire Lewis, as well as finding him, in some aspects, very troubling. Um, some experts rather questioned that and thought I was being too simplistic, but I did think that Elizabeth Anstrom, because he was a deeply misogynistic person, um, had been transformed into the, into the witch, really. What's so odd, she really admired him, and she was a fellow Christian. She was a very, very, very keen Roman Catholic, and um, she merely picked him up. She wasn't, therefore, trying to demolish his religious arguments. She picked him up on a particular point when he was trying to argue um, that forming any form of uh, ratiocination or reason uh, pre predisposed you to think that there must be some spiritual entity called the mind. And you couldn't imagine, um, you couldn't imagine a machine uh, thinking, basically, and you couldn't imagine artificial intelligence. And she just said, almost as an aside, because obviously we can all imagine artificial intelligence. Um, what about a speak your weight machine? Because in those days that was about the closest you got mm. to artificial intelligence. <laughs> um, and he, rather than just sort of laughing or saying, well, I, I perhaps got that slightly wrong, he, he absolutely collapsed like a house of, of cards. And he, when, he went, when he went back to the pub to see all his male cronies, he put his head in his hands, and he said, I'm finished, I'll never do another public debate, I've been humiliated by a 25-year-old woman. Gosh. Such uh, is life, eh? Such is life. Such is life. Yeah. I long to be humiliated <laughs> by a 25-year-old woman, but that's a... <laughs> but, uh, don't, but that's a different story. Okay. Um. Lewis is the writer who very famously declared he was writing for the general reader, that, yes. that, that he had a philosophy that would appeal to, that he, he understood how to talk to ordinary people. And, and you, your analysis of him was, was not that he was a deep thinker presenting deep ideas to ordinary people in language they could understand, but simply that he was a shallow thinker uh, with whom, well, for whom people felt I think I would now revise that. I think if I did say that, it's rather unfair, because I think he wasn't a shallow thinker. He was a careless thinker who was addicted. His father had been a very, very successful um, police lawyer in Belfast, in Northern Ireland, and his father loved winning arguments. He loved it when somebody came up before the beak and was obviously blind drunk and had just driven their car into a lamppost and he could somehow persuade the presiding magistrate that he was sober as a judge. And um, Lewis loved winning arguments in that sort of a way. But I think his literary commentaries are absolutely marvelous. I think his 16th century literary history um, is one of the best books of literary criticism ever written. And I love his book called The Discarded Image, which is imagining the way the world looks through medieval eyes. And um, he, he goes into medieval astronomy and all that sort of right. thing. And, and leaving aside the philosophy, the, line, the, the Narnia series are great children. Oh, I can't stand the, you the, can't the Narnia, stand Narnia things, no. Right. Not, not for you, okay. Um. <laughs> Sorry. I know many people enjoy them, so I'm not remotely trying to spoil their enjoyment. Well, let's go, let's going back to the question of faith for a moment, you began training for the priesthood when you were young, you lost your faith, 10 years ago you regained it. You've written, when I think about atheist friends, they seem to me like people who have no ear for music and who have never been in love. And you've also written, language along with music and love 
are the evidence that God made us in his image and endlessly renews us in his image. Now, having spent a good deal of your life as an atheist, are you, are you saying that during that period you didn't appreciate music? The no, love no, no, no. I, um, I obviously expressed myself rather clumsily. I was, um, what I was trying to say was, I don't think I was an atheist for very long in my life. I think I've always been um, an agnostic, and I was before and was after my return to going to church, uh, an agnostic. But um, what I think absolute uh, reductionist materialism is like, is like being a person who can't hear music, for example, or like being a person who hasn't had the experience of being in love. But That's what would, I, mean. I didn't mean to say that all atheists uh, would be wasting their time buying tickets for a concert. I, w I wasn't suggesting that. Right, and you would allow that atheists clearly do fall in love. And <laughs> no, of course, of course they do. What I'm saying is it's like having, you can imagine human beings, we've all known human beings who didn't have a musical ear or who haven't had a love life. Um, and it's like that, is what right. I'm saying. Okay, your book, um, your book Jesus, I, I notice, is not listed in recent bibliographies in, in the more recent books, although it is on sale in the foyer. Is there a reason it's I not listed? I don't think there's any particular reason, and I've, you were kind enough to point out at the beginning that I've written an awful lot of books. <laughs> and so when, when you have these lists at the beginning, I've started just to put the, the ones whose titles I could remember, and then et cetera. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure I'll really take that. <laughs> I do want to quote this, another lovely passage here, and I wonder whether this comes closer to the heart of it for you. You write, there are moments in the New Testament where one has the sensation of having only just missed the presence. It is like walking into a room in which a person has only just left and seeing evidence of their presence, the impression of a head against a cushion. That tantalizing sense of the being another reality is a very profound feeling, isn't it? Yes. And it's, to you, central to the question of faith now? I think, um, I think the simple answer is yes, it is. I, don't, I wouldn't want to be able to expand on it. And yet the mischievousness in you, is it that, or just the desire for truth? You tell us Joseph was a scholar and not a carpenter, because... Um, well, there's quite a lot in that Jesus book, which I think is probably... Um, I haven't read it since I wrote it. Um, I shouldn't think it's very good, but I may be wrong. Right, it's a, it's a language, it's a, it's a I mean, translation there is, issue, isn't it? There are people who think that the, the Greek word uh, used for carpenter uh, translates an Aramaic or Hebrew word, which means uh, a craftsman, really, and that he, he might have been a carpenter, but it could equally be used for somebody who was a rabbinic scholar, for example. Right. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much indeed. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.